Welcome to an exegetical study of biblical scripture. This scripture is God's speech, God's story, written through the hands of men by his spirit, and it's all about God's glory. My name is Bryce Ferguson. Join me now as we go into the word. This is Jesus. gentlemen, it is Easter Sunday. I greet you in the wonderful name of our risen Lord Jesus Christ, who died on a cross and rose from the grave for us, for all of mankind. This is the invitation he gives to all of mankind, that the death and the resurrection are for the world. It's an open invitation for the world to receive and forever be changed. You don't have to live like the world. You don't have to act like the world. You don't have to talk like the world. God has a better plan for you than that. And this is all on display and all because of Jesus Christ. This is what we celebrate. This is why we celebrate Easter. This is what Easter is about. It's not about the commercial side of it in the marketplace. It's not about finding eggs in a field, though that's fun to do for little kids. And if you have little kids, that's great. But the story is about the life and the death and the resurrection of the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And that is what we celebrate today. And we are going to dig into the Word of God today to let the word speak to us about the life of Jesus Christ and how his life, his death, his resurrection will change your life forever. Let's pray. Holy God, wonderful God, God who had a plan before all of time how to reconcile us because of our sin, because of our waywardness, because of our wickedness, to reconcile us back to you. You are so good and so loving and so generous and so gracious and so merciful and so forgiving, God. You are such a good God. And Lord, I lift up to you today the people in my life who are hurting who are in great need to feel your love, who are in great need to feel your comfort, who are in great need to be changed by you. And I know we all have people in our lives with these needs and these requests. And Lord, I lift up to you my sister in Christ, Julie, who has been a friend for a very long time and went through a very unfortunate and terrible accident a few weeks ago. She is still in ICU, and we pray for her healing, and we pray for her faith to be constant in you, to be strong in you. Lord, I thank you that she knows you, and she walks with you, and I pray that even during this time, that she would walk constant with you, that she would feel your love, that she would feel your comfort, that she would feel 
your healing of the situation in her spirit. And Lord, I pray for the healing of her body. And I pray all of these things in the name of the one who has created all things and knows all things intimately. The name of the one who is good and gives good gifts to his children and always takes care of his children. And I pray over and above all of this that your will would be done and that your will would be glorified and that your will would be made much of in this earth, in her life, in everyone's lives who are surrounding her, in the lives of the hospital staff, and in all of our personal lives, God, that you would be made much of, that you would be glorified, that you would be lifted up on the praises of your people, on the speech of your people, in the actions of your people, and that we would seek to live as Christ in a dark world. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. There is a sin problem on the earth. This is not new. We've been going through Genesis, and this started at practically, practically, not in chapter one of Genesis, but practically at the beginning of mankind. It was, folks, ever since that moment at the tree in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, when they chose to believe Satan instead of God, that mankind has struggled with sin. And I don't say, I don't use the word struggle to say that it's like any other, quote, struggle on this earth. This struggle actually means a death sentence for everyone who sins. For anyone who sins, even just once. Why? Because sin is opposition to Almighty God. And because God is the one and only judge. And God's standard is holiness. Or you could think of it as God's standard is the opposite of sin. Or sinlessness. God sets a standard because he is the author and the creator of all things. He's the one who created all things. And on a relational level, sin causes damage in that close abiding relationship God wants to have with you. In a marriage, if you choose something or someone in the place of where you should be choosing your spouse, it's going to cause problems. And if unremedied, it can cause the death of your marriage. Sin is not passive. It's not dormant. But rather, it's active, and it's like a virus. It's like a disease. When we think of sin now like this, we can see how it is a massive threat. And it's not passive. It's not a second thought. This is a huge problem. God and sin are polar opposites, similar to God and Satan in that way. But in that, do not think that I'm saying that they are equal. They're not. God is pure, holy, almighty, great, powerful, loving, merciful, and good. Sin tempts you to follow its ways, but it's a vapor. It's a phantom. You see 
what you think sin is, and when you choose it, it dissolves or it withers, it infects, and then it spreads. So not only is it cancerous, not only is it like a disease, but it also spreads and it grows. It causes disease and death in those who choose it. And I mean that mentally, it starts destroying your thoughts and the way you think. Emotionally, it messes with your emotions and your relationships. And spiritually, it can cause disease and death. Sin is like Satan who proclaims one thing and then gives you a totally different thing instead because Satan is a deceiver. And sin, like Satan, is deceptive. You can tell yourself for a while that sin will satisfy your longings, your desires, your wants, your needs. You can convince yourself for a while that it's fulfilling you, that it's doing why you sought it out, why you chose it, or why, why you determined to go that path. But that's a lie that you promulgate to yourself is after a time, the horrible repercussions of sin swing back around and cause disastrous fallout. And namely, that's between us and God. Ecclesiastes 8, 6 through 8 says, For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's troubles lie heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. People chase sin because they want something. They don't think that God has their best in store, and so they're chasing something else and believing the lie and the deception that this, whatever this is, will fulfill them or comfort them or ease the burden of pain or hurt or the past, that it will bring them some sense of peace or pleasure. But sin doesn't do that. In fact, sin is quite the opposite of that. You know, it's so amazing that the creator God of all things has an open invitation to relationship with him. He had chosen his people in the line of Israel. From the beginning, he called out Abram, become Abraham. He called Moses, he called the people of Israel and in the line of Israel. But when Jesus came to earth, the gates were flung wide open for men and women of all nations, all ethnicities and all groups to come to faith in God, and it was different than becoming a Jew before. He'd opened the door to the Gentiles, the Gentile nations, which is what most of us are, or how we would be classified today. We're called Christians, but in that language at that time, we would be considered Gentiles. We are not of the Jewish line of faith or of the Jewish genealogy of the people of Israel. Yet many have refused God, either at specific times in their lives or for all of their lives. 
And we see this in Adam and Eve sinning and therefore being cast out of the paradise like Garden of Eden where they walked with God. It was a paradise on earth. This was a lavish, abundant garden where God dwelled with man together. And there was no sin. But when they sinned, God cast them out. We see this in the people of Israel refusing to come near the mountain when God asked them to approach the base of the mountain at Mount Sinai. He said, no one is to step foot on this mountain, but come near and I myself will give you the law. He wanted to have this close abiding relationship with the entire nation of Israel that he had delivered out of Egypt by miraculous signs and wonders. In fact, that moment at the base of Mount Sinai was also a miraculous wonder. Can you imagine an entire mountain set on fire by God? That's what happened when he spoke to the people and asked them to come near, because God was displaying his glory to the people of Israel. And this was magnificent, and it was powerful, because God is powerful, and this is a great thing. But the people cowered in fear and said, no, no, we don't want to come near. We don't want to come near to you, God. We don't want to deal directly with God. And so he put Moses as his voice in between himself and the people. We see this with them at the base of the mountain when they built a golden calf idol while Moses was up on the mountain talking with God, receiving the law from God. We see this with the people's grumbling in the desert while God was leading them through the desert. A pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. And God was abundantly providing for the people, or I should say constantly providing for them, manna and then quail. We see this in the report of 10 out of the 12 spies whom Moses sent to spy out the promised land of Canaan. And what happened? Ten said that the threat of the men in the promised land, the quote-unquote promised land, was too great that the people of Israel should not go right into the promised land to take hold of it because they feared the people of the lands, the inhabitants of Canaan. And God, had, God was going to lead them directly into the promised land. So even though two of the spies believed God, trusted God, had faith in God, and said, no, we can take them because we trust God. It was the report of the ten which ruled the day and therefore caused the entire nation of Israel who crossed the Sinai Peninsula to wander in the desert for the next 40 years until all of them died off, except for the two spies who trusted God, Caleb and Joshua. We see again the people's refusal of God by refusing to believe the prophets that God sent to them throughout the Old Testament. The prophets who came to proclaim God's truth, who came to proclaim God's warning to follow God and not to follow the ways of this world, to follow God and not to give in to sin and live a lifestyle of sin and chase sin. They said, no, repent. 
and come to God. Trust God. Surrender your lives to God. Submit your lives to God. We see this in the time of Jesus with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were of two different sects of the Jewish faith or groups of the Jewish faith. We could think of it today as denominations of the Jewish faith. And these were the religious leaders of the Jewish faith, and they refused to believe in Jesus Christ. So he was right there, walking with them, talking with them. How we long to have lived in those days, to have seen Jesus walk directly, physically, tangibly among us and talk with us. And the Jews refused them, most, many, but the religious leaders for sure. Another fault of mankind in this refusal to trust God is the temptation that Satan works in our world for individuals to build their own reputation apart from God. Think of it like this, that if, if I only do this or I only do that, or if I only associate myself with this group over here, or only build my image by adorning myself in this way, or I create my social media photos or my portfolio in a, a prestigious way or a, a sporty way or a cool way, that I can create my own identity or build my own empire, my own utopia on earth. But what that actually does is it builds walls around yourself to isolate yourself apart from God. And it builds an identity of your own apart from God. And building any identity apart from God is not only sinful, but it's wickedness. Because the creator, the author of all things, is the ruler God of all things. And he leads all things. He is the one judge over all things. He is the one ruler over all things. He's great and mighty and sovereign and all-powerful, and he's in control, and he will be worshipped. And those who run and chase pride outside of God are not giving glory to God. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, starting in verse 1, King Solomon says this. King Solomon says a lot of things in the book of Ecclesiastes, folks. If you want to learn a lot about life and a lot about wisdom and a lot about the example of what not to follow, but other examples of what to follow, you should definitely read the book of Ecclesiastes. There's some mystery in part of this as well, but this is pretty straightforward. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1, if you have your Bibles, please join me. King Solomon said, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold of folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. 
I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than anyone who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines. Those are women who you sleep with, who are not your wife, by the way. That's the meaning of the word concubine. It's not a word often used today. The delights, he says, of the sons of man. In other words, folks, he chased a lot of things, and some were directly sinful by concubines. So he says, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. I would say wisdom in a lot of areas, but obviously not concubines and the other sinful ways. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, this is how he resolves it, folks. All was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained from under the sun. See, for a while, King Solomon, though he knew God, ran from God. He chased all these other things in the world. He was the richest king to ever live in Israel. He had incredible wealth, and he chased all these other things in the world, looking for fulfillment, looking for pleasure, looking for whatever he wanted, because he could afford it, frankly. And he was a king, so he was powerful. And even chasing all of these things, he still says what he says over and over and over again in Ecclesiastes. He says, all was vanity. It was vain. And a striving after the wind. Have you ever chased wind or tried to chase wind? You run after it in a field or run after it on a city street? You can't. First of all, it's really hard to see wind. We can see the effects of wind, but you can't see the air moving through the air. It's foolhardy, in other words. Solomon also said in Ecclesiastes 8, starting in verse 10, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is interesting. So he's saying the wicked went in and out of the holy place. Solomon says this also is vanity because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. And Solomon said again in Ecclesiastes that there's never enough. There's never enough when chasing the things of this world. That it's an endless pit. They're just digging after and digging after. And the greedy man is always wanting more. The wealthy man is always wanting more more, and he doesn't have peace that he has enough. And at the end, how does he conclude all of Ecclesiastes? 
At the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, Solomon comes back around. He says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Romans 14.10 says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Folks, if you know that the sentence for sin, even one sin, is death, and that we're all going to give an account of ourselves to God, where is the hope? Where is the good news? How do we have the good news? We need good news. And that verse in Romans 14 is not just for Christians and Jews. The verse, this truth it's universal truth about sin and death and judgment. It's for every single person ever born on the earth. The standard, God's standard, is the same. It's for holiness, and people everywhere throughout the earth have not been faithful. Even if you think you've lived your life well, or you've been in the church, or you tried hard to be faithful, you've still fallen short with regard to the standard that God has for all of us, and therefore, you've opposed God. But God had a plan. And his rescue mission plan is the same for us today as it always has been throughout time. The plan was modeled after the Old Testament animal sacrifices for sin, which God had intricately instructed the people to do as a devout ritual in a very specific manner prescribed by God. But even this was a foreshadowing of the greater plan, or the great plan from God. And this plan was for God to send his son to earth to die on a cross for the sins of all who would repent and surrender their lives in worship and obedience to God. Jesus says in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's good news, folks. And in verse 48 of John 6, Jesus continues and says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Later on the last day of the Feast of Booths at the temple in John 7.37, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet 
glorified. In John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And he spoke to the Jews concerning his identity as the son of God. In John 8, 24, when he said, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus makes an exclusive claim there, folks. And we're going to connect this with another scripture here in a little bit. But he makes a very exclusive claim that believing in Christ is what will pay the penalty for that sin because of what Jesus did on the cross for sin. But unless you believe in Christ as your Savior, he's telling the Jews, the ones leading the church at the time of Jesus in John 8, that they will die in their sins. And also to confirm his identity to the Jews, in John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews at this time would have recognized the language, that declaration, I am. All the way back to Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush in Exodus 3, verse 14. God says, I am who I am. Tell them, I am has sent me to you. He said those words to Moses. Jesus connects that and says, that is the name of God. And before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is also saying there, he is eternal that he was walking and talking and living among them on earth at that moment. And he was also from before Abraham, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, thousands. And then the cross. Prophesied of Jesus' death and sacrifice almost 700 years prior to Jesus' birth on the earth. We read this from Isaiah 53, starting in verse 2. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. 
yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. In John 10, Jesus said, I laid down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. So he was already talking about the Gentiles. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Folks, Jesus is a uniter. For this reason, he said, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And this charge I have received from my father. Later in John 10 at verse 27, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Folks, we can have assurance in God. God, the all-powerful God, the creator of all things, God, the one who knows every single thought in your head at all times, who knows the motivations of your heart, who knows how much money's in your bank account, who knows how you spend the money that's in your bank account, who knows what you say every time you say it. The one who is always watching knows you. And the one who is always watching knows those who submit their lives to God's authority, who worship God, who love God, who want to live a righteous life in glory to God, and those he pulls close, and those he wants to have a loving and abiding, daily walking type relationship with. Was Jesus has predicted his death. As Jesus has predicted the cross and gone to the cross. But it doesn't end there. Let's look at this telling of the death and what comes after the death. But first, a declaration in John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to Martha, when Lazarus had died, he said, he's got it that too. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 27, starting in verse 35. 
And when they had crucified him, Jesus, they divided his garments among them, casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right, one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. They mocked him, folks, while Jesus was being crucified. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will, we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This was the temple in Jerusalem, a very heavy, thick curtain, folks that separated the people's access to the most holy place. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So Jesus' resurrection later and multiple, many resurrections of people who had died, echoed that. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made. You know what's interesting? I guess they did listen to Jesus once in a while. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. The last fraud will be worse than the first. 
Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Chapter 28 Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come. See the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And that story has been spread among the Jews to the day of this writing, the book of Matthew. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Folks, God triumphs over sin. God triumphs over death. For death cannot hold God. Because God dwells outside of time. God dwells outside of life and death on earth. God created earth. God created mankind. God created oxygen. God created the sun. God created the moon. God created the stars. God created outer space. God created water. He is over and above all things, so there is no way death could have ever held him. And Jesus makes this exclusive statement in John 14, 6, saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is this statement of Christ which affirms his identity, his mission for his life on the earth to reconcile us to God, to make a path to God. The God also was not only the source of life from the creation stage, but he's the source of life at all stages. 
and in every meaning of the word, and he's also the only source of truth in the world. How do we have a right relationship with God? Jesus says, it's through me alone. It's only through believing in Jesus Christ as the one and only Savior of the world who died on a cross for your sin, paying the penalty for your sin to God the Father, taking your place that you can have true life and have life abundantly as it was always meant to be, walking with God, worshiping God, submitting to God's authority, obeying his commandments. This is the purpose of man on the earth. This is the purpose for your life and for my life. And if you have not submitted your life to Christ, today is the day for salvation. And if you want to give your life to Christ today, I pray that you do. Please pray this prayer with me. Lord God, I know that I am a sinner. I know the punishment for sin is death. But I believe Jesus Christ came to earth to die on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe Jesus Christ is the Savior, that he is the way and the truth and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. Please forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for refusing you. Forgive me for walking in a way that does not worship you. And teach me to walk in the ways of God and not to walk in the ways of the world. For the glory of God and so that I can be changed to walk a new life with you. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Join me next time as we continue in Genesis chapter 6.